As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Hello, Rocket Ship listeners. We had a special interview for you this week. It's actually with me. I know we don't talk a lot about ourselves on the show here. We really try to let the stories that we're telling shine, uh, but you may not be all that familiar with our backgrounds. And so I had done this interview with Jay Klaus of the Creative Elements podcast not too long ago. I thought it might be interesting for listeners here as well. Um, and you can subscribe to Jay's show, Creative Elements, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but here's a, a preview. We've actually included the entire interview here. And you can go and listen to all the other interviews he's done on the Creative Elements feed. So with that, enjoy. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. He started his career 15 years ago as a product designer, and he started a product agency that built applications for Scholastic, GE, Nike, Siemens, Kobe Bryant, and more. And then he created a software tool for brand asset management called Brandesty which I used a lot and actually had no idea he was a part of until this very conversation. It was acquired in 2014 and is now owned by Envision. And he was the president of Crew, a freelance design and development marketplace and former parent company of Unsplash, the popular stock photo website. As you can see, Michael has had quite the career for a product designer, and that wasn't even how I knew him. Michael has been running the show Rocket Ship since 2014. It's actually one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to as a budding product manager myself back in the day, and it's one of the highest production quality shows that I've ever heard. Back in March of 2019, I was introduced to Michael over email. I was about a year into running my other podcast called Upside and was trying to learn from more experienced and successful podcasters. Michael and I chatted over the phone for about 30 minutes, we had a great conversation, and he talked quite a bit about how great of an experience he's had working with the podglomerate. 
This very show is now on the Podglomerate Network because Michael introduced me to Jeff, the CEO, in April of 2019. And without the Podglomerate, creative elements may not even exist. So I'll say it again, I'm grateful to have met and know Michael. In this episode, we talk about Michael's own path, which covers a lot of different paths that a lot of us have probably considered at one point or another. We talk about building an agency and closing that agency down. We talk about building software products and the challenges that come with it. We talk about working a nine to five job with a team and why it can be a really great choice. We talk about creative outlets and balancing a side project with a nine to five job and ultimately the role that constraints play in all of our decisions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or on Instagram at jklaus. Go ahead, say hello, tell me that you're listening right now. Take a screenshot if you want. But now let's talk to Michael. This is longer ago than I I would care to admit. But yeah, I I had graduated college. I built a recording studio in in Massachusetts. It it failed, right? Um, Building a recording studio is quite hard, especially when trying to do it in your living room. Um, But we were always ambitious. So I was kind of moving on from from that phase in my my life, my early 20s. And I moved out to Los Angeles because I I had a music business degree from college, which I, I think we were one of the only universities that offered a music business business degree. So I went out to, to LA to get a job and I applied at all of the big record labels. I applied at any of the big agencies, CAA, and I got rejected from all of them because none of them had ever heard of a music business degree. They had all largely been either self-taught or, or came up through a path of connections and I didn't have any of those. So I ended up just working at restaurants in, in Los Angeles. And my uh, my roommate at the time, who I met on Craigslist, would wake up around noon. He'd come home around four. Um, and he had this job. He's making three times as much money as I was. And he had this job that they couldn't fire him because he was a, he had taught himself PHP. And he had built this little app um, that they ran practically their entire business on. And I, I realized that this was probably a must much better path than the one that that I was on at the time. And so I, I started kind of piggybacking on his work and I started learning basically from him. So I, I taught myself design, which was something that complemented his skill set. And then uh, I started to learn how to, to code first on the front end and eventually a bit on the back end. And so that was really kind of my, my motivation was to get out of doing what I was doing, right? Working at the the restaurants in, in LA and I, I was just not happy, right, with, with where I was at. I, I finally decided to quit the restaurant. I had, you know, like a client lined up paying me $25 an hour. And I just started taking all the overflow work from from my friend Ethan, who I could. And and that really led me to this path in tech. And right. So the first three years, it was a lot of long days teaching myself while actually taking on paid work. What year ish was this? So let's see, this was um, 12, 15 years ago, probably more, probably like 16 years ago. Early 2000s. Yeah. And so mobile was just starting to kind of pick up. So I, I taught myself the front end, the back end. I, I had started picking up, it's pretty steady client base. A couple of years in, I, I worked for Kobe Bryant. That really helped to, to pick up momentum, at least. People started to trust you more. Eventually, I got some big contracts with Scholastic and GE building mobile web apps. And so what we had done is I had found a partner who I also met on Craigslist. And... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess that was the day. But I had found a partner and we decided to go all in on HTML5 mobile web apps. Sencha was the big framework at the time, which I, I don't know if it's around anymore. Um, <laughs> but but it, it was a bit, it was on the cusp. And so there was a lot of companies that were interested in it because you could launch to Android and iOS with one code base. That was our that was our pitch. There wasn't a lot of agencies doing this. And so we were able to land those big contracts with GE, who was very interested in this, and, um, and Scholastic. And that kind of set the trajectory for building an agency. And so this is about five years in, and we ended up renting a space in downtown San Diego. I moved with my wife to San Diego from Las Vegas, where we were living. And we went in all in on this creative agency. Something I want to stop and and double click on here. You know, you taught yourself how to code, which is super difficult and a scarce skill set in early 2000s. And then that led to a contract with Kobe Bryant, Scholastic, and GE. Whoa. If I'm listening to this and I'm saying, I want big name clients. Sure, I, I get that. Okay, let's let's say you had this super differentiated approach and skill set that was a competitive advantage. How did you get the meeting in the first place? Right. So they actually reached out to me. So Kobe was just a contact of of someone who was already working in the agency. They had actually won the Kobe contract, but they couldn't they they didn't want to do the front end code. And so they were an agency in Los Angeles and they reached out to me to basically do the work. But I was able to put it on my portfolio. I made sure that in the contract I could advertise that I had done the work with Kobe Bryant. And we ended up coding a a good part of the site, um, kb24.com. And so we were able to leverage that as trust. And then we did another small project with a local Mac store. And it didn't go anywhere, right? They they never, we didn't actually get, get paid for it, but we had built a scheduling prototype and we were able to put that up on our portfolio. And so now we had two big names that we could say we, we've at least worked with. And so when we started doing this kind of HTML5 work, that's when Scholastic came. Scholastic actually called us to submit an RFP because we were one of five agencies on the Sencha site that were featured. And we had done some small projects with them, but nothing too big. But it was just kind of, I want to say luck, but it it was strategic in the sense that we positioned ourselves as with a niche skill set that was highly valued and highly paid, right? Because if there's only so many agencies that can do this type of work at the time, you can charge a lot for it. And that that was our goal, right? If we're going to do client work, let's charge as much as we can for it. Let's find the niche. And and we, we rode that niche until it became saturated and then we moved over into Node. So that was always kind of a theme for the agency was to try to stay on the cutting edge so that we could charge a premium, even though we were very small. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. But it, it takes a little bit of an imagination to even get there. So was that something that someone counseled you to do? Or how did you come up with that as a strategy in the first place? I think it was just um, we saw, we got some initial eyeballs with it. So we we built this app for Mac. And that was really just kind of scratching our own itch. We were working with a, a local manager there who wanted to build a scheduling app and then pitch it up to corporate. So we were like, all right, you know, we got some free time. Let's do this. So we started scratching our own itch. And then we, we had another client who wanted a mobile app. And we were like, we don't write iOS. We don't write Java, right? We, we don't write, um, it was Objective-C, I guess, at the time. And so with that, we were trying to figure out how do we take on this client and say yes, but solve it in a way where we could use our skill set. 
And we we put that client up on our portfolio. You know, we went out to Dribble, we went out to to the various sites, and somehow we we kept getting inbound leads for this type of work. So we knew we were onto something. So it was really more positive signals in the market led us down this this directive path. Inbound leads. If only we were all so lucky. But that's what happens when you build a name for yourself as a person or a team that solves a problem that other people can't. It also happens when you have some great portfolio pieces to point to. But this was an introduction to one of Michael's first constraints. There was a limit of how much Michael's small team could take on. And there are a few ways you can deal with that constraint. You can raise your rates, you can say no, or you can staff up into a bigger agency. And Michael's team chose to staff up. Yeah, we only staffed up to about 10. And and so we, we stayed fairly small. And what we always wanted to do was build our own products. So we would do basically half client work where we charged as much as we possibly could and then half personal projects. And and so that was, our goal was to always be like base camp. They had that agency before. They That, that was our hero, right? Or Tehan and Lax at the time, where they were able to successfully launch initiative, product initiatives that they owned themselves, but they were still, you know, able to fund that through the client work. And eventually, you know, Basecamp set themselves free and was solely dedicated to Basecamp. So that was always our goal. That was the model that we were trying to achieve. So we we did work with all of these large clients. We we staffed up to the minimum that we had to. So we we only ever brought people on when we absolutely needed to, when we were doing too much work ourselves. Um, and we always took that approach. So we were always selling, but then we were always building. And our goal was never to have a large agency. Can you talk to me about what it means to hire in an agency setting yeah, so the the hiring is terrifying in an agency because, you know, with a product, you can hire basically on predictive revenue or projected revenue, right? It, you know, if you bring on a new head of marketing, then you can, you know, expect to grow your revenue by X percentage. But with an agency, it's really all on you to sell, right? And so you never really know where your next client is coming from. We never knew if, if Scholastic was going to come back next year with a new app. So we put all of that time and effort into that relationship and then... Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. And so we always had to be one step ahead where we were building and then selling. And that that was really why we never wanted to grow big because that pressure wasn't necessarily something that we were comfortable with or we, we were really interested in building a business on top of. So yeah, hiring is uh, terrifying. That's why agencies use a ton of uh, contract work so you can scale up and scale down. So if Scholastic doesn't come back for a second contract, well, now you know you just let the contractors know that we can't renew it, but it's it's much easier to do that than to let go of employees, pay severance, you know, and, and deal with more permanent situation. And so that was the the approach that we took was to to hire the least number of people as possible. And it is a huge risk when you bring someone on to an agency, especially a small agency, where you don't yet really have that predictive deal flow, and you are still fighting for every deal that you get against bigger and bigger agencies with more talent. So we would bring on people that did skills that we felt like we could sell. But again, it's never a guarantee. I think that's an important thing to know for someone who may be interested in working for an agency, you know, because these agencies get a lot of people who would love to work there. But sometimes on the inside, they don't even know if they're going to be able to keep that commitment to the employee six months from now, 12 months from now. It's absolutely true. Yeah. It's the early 2000s, and Michael Saka's agency is up and running. 
They've hired a couple full-timers, but they're mostly running with contractors. And the team is trying to spend half of its time creating their own products, the way agencies like Basecamp did before them. But did they get any products into market? Yeah, 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 we did. I mean, we learned a lot, actually. We built The first thing we built was an iOS game called Bilingual Child. And we ended up making a whole series, about nine of these. And so this was a language learning game for kids. And again, it was a market opportunity that we saw. There was a Montessori app that was printing money at the time. Uh, it was huge on Hacker News. And it was a very simple game that just taught kids how to trace letters. So we thought, well, what if we taught them language? And so, you know, we hired some some voice actors. We did like about 100 uh, vocabulary words. And it was very simple. It would say it in English. It would say it in Spanish. And then we did the, the reverse. And so we launched those. That app's Still makes money today. It became one of the the very popular apps in the App Store. It was featured by Apple at, at one time. And so for about 10 years, it has been fairly consistent. Wow. Generating uh, just residual revenue. We haven't updated it in about eight years, but <laughs> it's still out there. And then we, we ended up doing about nine of those. And then from there, we tried to do a huge language learning game with like a map and this interactive gameplay. That didn't work out quite as well. We wasted about a year trying to bring that out. We never released it. It was called Lingual. We did a Kickstarter for it even. And so that was tough. We, we never got it to a point where we were happy with it and it ended up kind of fizzling out. But from there, we built Brandisty, which is a brand asset management system. And that was probably our most successful in terms of recognition. We had some, some big clients on it and we kind of shut down the agency and went all in on that product towards the end. We lost around $150,000 in doing that. That was the cash that we had saved up from running the agency that we had in the bank. But it was a very purposeful decision. We had all kind of burnt out on the agency at that point. So we said, this is either going to work or it's not. And we, we decided just to put it all in on taking this thing to market. It's actually why I started the Rocketship podcast, because I realized that we had no idea what we were doing. We could build the product, the product functioned, but um, we didn't know how to market it. We didn't know how to actually take it and, and make it something that was, that was standalone. We were able to get traction. I, we were able to, at the time, Medium was just starting. So I, you know, I was able to market it through writing, which got a lot of attention, but it didn't get a lot of purchases because it wasn't targeted, right? It was just kind of like the startup community. Startup community doesn't have any money. When you're looking at like uh, brand asset management systems, they started around between 100 and 500,000 a year. And then we're coming in here with a $20 a month product that the, the big people didn't trust because it's only $20 a month built by like, you know, the small agency they never heard of. And then you've got like the established players with full sales teams and, and robust contracts and robust feature sets. And so there, there was a gap in the market where we could acquire free customers all day, but upgrading them even just to $20 a month was near impossible. And I was just trying to figure out what we were doing wrong because it seemed like we had interest but we couldn't turn kind of the revenue, the table on the revenue. And that was, it was the big unknown. And so that's, you know, we, we started Rocketship to, to start getting advice from people. In the end, it, it, it didn't work, but it was able to open up that opportunity to at least start to learn. And I did eventually sell um, Brandisty to another brand asset management system that was then acquired by Envision shortly after. A lot of creative service-based businesses try to follow the path that Michael is describing. 
At some point, they get frustrated with spending all of their time on other people's visions. Maybe a client doesn't actually use the work they spent so much time creating, and they start building their own projects. But a great part about freelancing or agency work is the variety of projects you can dip your toe into. So I've always wondered if those teams who start building their own products internally end up missing the variety that comes with client work. No, it was actually a relief coming from the agency side because uh, after for a good five years, you're working on other people's vision and you're you're running from one to the other. And I always wanted to do the follow-up because I felt like there we never learned enough. We would build on our assumptions because there was no data at the beginning. And then I wanted to learn, well, what do people really want? And we never got to do that phase of any of these projects, right? We never got to do the follow-on work. And so Brandisty allowed us to do that follow-on work, to actually iterate, to listen to the market, to interview customers and start to, to build features based on what they were looking for. We couldn't do it fast enough because we weren't big and a big enough team. But at the same time, that was the opportunity that I really wanted. And that's why I eventually moved on to Crew because I knew that I, I wanted to wake up every morning and actually build build upon the same mission and the same product to improve that rather than trying to do so many different little things that didn't have a big impact. I fell in love with Crew as soon as they they launched it. We, we had Mikel on the podcast. And so Crew was uh, a freelance marketplace. So we had clients coming in looking for work. We had freelancers coming in looking to, for, to find projects. And we were the middleman. We were matching them with it. So I knew that pain very personally from, you know, from freelancing, from them building an agency. I knew how scary it is to not know where your next project is coming from. And the whole premise was of Crew was to solve that problem. We negotiated the budget. So by the time the project came to the freelancer, they knew exactly what the project was, how big the budget was, what the scope was. And all they had to do was basically submit their portfolio, have a good conversation with the client and hopefully land it. But the client was talking to three people at the most. And so we did our best just to make the experience great for both sides of the market. It still kind of sucks today trying to find a freelancer. But that was the big problem we were trying to solve was just a mission that that really resonated with me. I, I started something else after Brandisty with a good friend who was an ex-Google engineer. And so we we had been kicking the tires on, on this idea for about six months. We started building, but Mikel reached out and he just had such a a great pitch. And he's like, I, I just want you to come on board and, and run the partnerships for me. And, it, you know, I had a conversation with my wife and it just, it seemed to make sense, but it wasn't something that I applied for. It wasn't something I was necessarily looking for, but when the opportunity was there, I, I knew I should probably take it. What was it like going from running your own agency to running a product to now helping build someone else's vision, even though you were bought into it? Was that strange or hard for you? It felt like retirement, actually, in a way. Like I, I, I always worked hard, but Mikkel and, and Steph, now, now there was a leadership group that I wasn't necessarily a part of. And so a lot of the big decisions, a lot of the stress of, of raising funds, of hitting metrics, it wasn't as much my burden, right? I, I, I could focus in on partnerships and sales and hitting our numbers there, um, but it actually relieved a lot of the burden for that time. Of, of having to worry about everything, right? We, I had a bigger team. We were like, 
we were 16 people when I joined, we grew to about 40. Um, and so all of a sudden we had a lot of people and a lot of hands to do all the work, which was something we never had at the agency. I was, I was taking sales calls and then running over and designing someone's app, you know, and, and, uh, contact switching constantly at the agency just to stay alive here at crew. I could, you know, send it over to the design team, ask the development team to build something, ask Mikel, what's our next big initiative, right? None of that necessarily. So, so it was a blast. Um, I, what they built at Unsplash is, is incredible, but it, w- it was nice to be able to focus. And I had just had a son and I, I really needed that, some of that, that pressure taken off at that time. Michael worked at Crew for just over two years before that company was acquired by his current employer, Dribble, in 2017. While building out the core product for Crew, the founding team started a side project called Unsplash, which provides beautiful free images and photos for people to use on the web. I'd bet you've already heard of Unsplash before, and if you haven't, I would guarantee you've seen some of their photos used across the internet. And so it wasn't long until the team at Crew faced their own capacity constraints. At some point, Unsplash took over importance. Unsplash just grew like a weed. It was a side project at Crew that we had built just to get attention for Crew. Um, and it was, again, it was just kind of by accident. Mikkel and uh, and Luke and Steph, they had put up 10 pictures on this shoddy blog and said, here, have them for free. And it blew up from there. And so then every week they were posting another 10 pictures and then people started submitting pictures. And that's what became Unsplash. And Unsplash had more traffic than crew. And so they had kind of decided, you know, this is actually the big opportunity for us. Is And I, I don't think they got that wrong at all. And so they had asked me to find a home for crew essentially because they they went and and focused on unsplash and so we went out and pitched various companies who were in the space and dribble just made the most sense it was also something like i grew up on dribble i remember getting my first dribble invite and so when i was talking to zach again dribble just had kind of a, a personal mission for me it was still trying we're still trying to solve that freelance work problem but just on a much bigger scale right uh, we Dribble does, uh, you know, 5.5 million visitors a month. And so um, this was just a scale we didn't even have it at Crew. And so it, it was a natural fit, I think, for the team. We had just followed Michael's career up to where he is today. He went from agency to software product with Brandisty to freelance marketplace with Crew. And today he is the VP of product at Dribble. Michael is obviously a wildly talented and experienced guy. He taught himself design. He taught himself how to code. A lot of times we really glorify the entrepreneur. On this show, I mostly speak with creators who are all in on their own projects. So I wondered if a talented guy like Michael ever missed the days of being out on his own, if he ever feels tension with his own creative self, and if so, how he deals with it. Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, I still do rocket ship, right? And so I always need something. I, I need a project that I own and that I have that creative outlet. And whether that's design or audio, I definitely need to be creating something. But at the same time, when you're working on something that is kind of core to your experience, like Dribble, and you know how big of an impact it can have and how big of a reach it has, it's hard to not want to do that as well, right? So I am definitely 
all in on on the mission at Dribble, and I don't have kind of a creative longing to to go out on my own at this point. But I do like to have a side project, really, just to stay fresh, right? It really just to be able to flex some of the skills I don't get to do at work every day, and that's what Rocket Ship has always scratched that itch for me. Before Rocket Ship, it was it was small apps that I would build. I built Bench Warmer, which was one of the first Chrome plugins for for Dribble. But yeah, so I need a creative outlet, but I don't need it to be my main thing. Rocket ship. You said you started this while you're at Brandisty and it was uh, a means for you to meet people to learn what you didn't know about building the product that you were building. Can you talk more about the inception of that, when it was, because I think it's still pretty early on and even podcasting and what you thought the potential of that show was? Yeah. So this is about seven years ago, I guess, 2014. Or six years ago, what we we did was we started it to write a book because we were very hot on ourselves, and we thought that we should write a book on how to launch a product. And through writing that book on launching a product, we'll learn how to launch a product, which is a terrible idea. And so we we started interviewing people. We were all about bootstrapping, so we we were very anti funding. Um, we were in San Diego, which had no funding, and so we kind of had to be a, a bootstrapped. Uh, with this bootstrap mentality, I'd met Matt Goldman and uh, Joel, now Goldman, um, and we just wanted to do something together. They were great people. We were just looking for a project to do, and we said, well, let's write this book. How do we write a book? Well, let's interview people. So we started recording the interviews, and, we, and as we were releasing them, the interviews were getting a ton of attention because there was just a gap, again, in content for bootstrappers at that time. So there was this whole bootstrappers movement. Microconf was just starting. Heaton Shaw was was kind of the celebrity entrepreneur at that time. But there wasn't a lot of content on how to do it well and what people were experiencing. And it was still seen as you have to raise funding. We were were in this real funding time in the market. And so everything was startups, funding, go big and, you know, fail fast. And then there was this bootstrapper, small community emerging that I guess wasn't as small as we thought because the interview started picking up steam. We were getting 100, 200, 300 listens, which was more than we, we ever anticipated. And then we had people reach out like Envision to sponsor the show. And so that we we, we had sponsors from like episode two and on. And, and so again, we just got these positive signals that, all right, well, maybe we're onto something. We weren't huge signals, but, but we felt like we were onto something. So we never actually wrote the book and we just kept going with the podcast. Um, we were releasing three episodes a week at the time. Wow. And for the first three years, it was all just straight interviews with entrepreneurs. Um, and we would record them, you know, right in our office there in, in San Diego. Crazy. And at the same time, what was Rocket Ship like when you made the move to go to Crew? Where were things then? Yeah, so it was fairly well established at that point. We never went an episode without sponsorship. So it was it was already a small business at that time. And so when I went to Crew, they saw it as an advantage. It was a way to get visibility out there. You know, I would talk about Crew on the podcast. So they didn't mind and they, they were all about side projects anyway. So when I went to Crew... I talked to Mikkel, he he had no problem with continuing it. And so it was something that once I had a full-time job, I really had to be cognizant of the amount of time I was spending. So that's when we really started to optimize the format and and try to find a format that worked that we could do in a couple hours a week. And that was always the goal to create the highest quality show we could with the least amount of time. Did you ever think about at this time, building rocket ship up to a sustaining business for you and the team as opposed to having a job? Yeah, we did. I just didn't want to do it. 
it was the influencer that that was kind of the model. It maybe still is, but it was the influencer model. And I never felt comfortable in that position. We, we had, especially in the beginning in the podcast, we barely had a personality. We always wanted the guest to be the personality. It wasn't until later on that took more of the reins in the show. But I also, I, I just never felt comfortable with that giving advice. Once you're working, the advice isn't as clean as you see on Instagram. And I felt like that was the path to success in that area was to become some sort of influencer expert. Um, and that wasn't something we ever really wanted to do. And so we we always kept it as a fun side project, something that we enjoyed, a creative outlet, rather than trying to force it into something that we weren't passionate about doing. How do you think about managing the full-time job and the side project that now generates real revenue? I was listening to another interview you did this morning, and back in 2018, you said that Rocketship was doing close to $10,000 a month pretty reliably. So if someone else builds up to that position, which would be an awesome position to be in, how do you think about holding on to both things versus going back to the Brandesty attempt of doubling down? Yeah. Uh, and, and any other advice you would give for someone in that position? Yeah, I think you have to look at everything for what it is. I, I like like we talked about before. We could have tried to make rocket ship something that it wasn't, but we, we wanted to be true to what we had built and true to ourselves and what we wanted to create. And so, yeah, rocket ship will never be the only thing that I do. And you know, to balance the time, we've tried to optimize it to the point where it takes us maybe two hours a week to put out the show. But our goal is to be, you know, the quality of NPR. I don't think we're there, but that's the goal, right? But can we do that with two hours a week of our time? And so that's the challenge with Rocketship. And I think if we had all the time in the world, I don't know how much better the show would be. Almost those constraints kind of make it what it is. Um, and it forces us to be creative with our time, be creative with our process and hone all of that in. I, I think you just, you have to be true to what you what you want to do. We, we probably could have made rocket ship something that we did full time. I just, when, when I saw the result of what that would have been, it wasn't the life that, that I really wanted. I wanted more creative freedom. And so while it sounds like you would, I, I, I kind of knew what the market needed and it wouldn't have given me that freedom that we do enjoy today where we can just kind of put out whatever we want. Sometimes people hate it, honestly. Um, <laughs> but, and they let us know, but I, I don't really care. I guess at the end of the day is like, this is our interpretation of what's happening in the world. And this is our space to express it. And it doesn't have to be anything else because I don't have to worry about, is my income going to go away? Can I feed my family? This is, it's just a creative outlet. You probably talk to people that are pretty early in their career all the time. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I've been doing a little bit of freelancing and I'm thinking about scaling this up, but it's really hard and I struggle with it. How do you tease out or recommend they think about their path in terms of, should I keep building my own thing, maybe scale up to an agency, or should I join a team somewhere and be a really great player within a really great team with higher impact? It's a great question. And I think it depends on trajectory. So like much like we talked about in the early days, we had a trajectory, right? We had Kobe Bryant and then Scholastic and then GE coming to us. So we, we had these signals from the market that things were working. And even when things were hard, we knew that we were doing something that these large companies respected and needed. And we always were, were modifying our pitch to get there. But we had a trajectory. If we didn't have that trajectory, I don't think it would have been possible. And so it's also 
are you good at sales? And, and like when things get hard, can you hit the road and, and drum up business? And do you want to? A lot of people don't. And and so I, I think there's always a couple factors. If you have natural inbound and you have to get to the point where it's painful and you have too much work, you're turning away too much work, and then you're going to hire someone to take on some of the the overflow, I think it's a natural progression into an agency, but that has everything to do with trajectory. If you want to do something, but you don't have people knocking down your door to do it, it might not be the right time, right? Or you just got to get ready for you know, to knock on doors and, and do the sales. And if you don't want to do that, joining a larger company is one way to get that trajectory, right? So a lot of people join agencies and they get Nike and they get Adidas and they get, you know, all these great brands under their belt and then they go out on their own, right? And they leverage that agency's name. So now you came from AKQA or Fantasy, right? So that's on your resume. People trust you. And you worked with Nike and, you know, Google. Well, now that's on your resume. And you could look at people like Hallie from Wayno, who came from Medium and then Google and then freelancing with those same companies. And he was able to leverage that portfolio into building one of the best agencies out there today. But there's no way he would have just built Wayno without working in Silicon Valley for five, 10 years. And so I think it's all about building that momentum and the trajectory. And it really depends where you are on that cycle. And if it feels too hard, you might just not have the momentum to, to, to do it because it's not easy. Being at Dribble and previously at Crew, you've seen a ton of different people's portfolios and approach, and you've hired at an agency, you've been inside of an agency. How can somebody stand out if they want to get considered for one of these fairly scarce agency positions? So I think that you either have to be in the top 1% of your skill, or you have to be good at selling. Because there's two things that really work. You either have to be exceptional, and your skill has to be so good that the agency can sell your work, right? And they know that you are going to level them up. Or you have to be really good at communicating and selling yourself, selling your work. Because that's the other skill of a designer isn't just doing the work, but it's communicating the why behind your work. It's selling, you know, it, it's the Mad Men kind of style, but it's selling yourself, your work, your ideas. And those are two incredibly valuable skills. But if you're not good at either one, it's going to be really tough. You use the word constraints just a moment ago. And we talked about earlier how big you were into bootstrapping these companies that you were doing, which is its own very real financial constraint. Are constraints something that you think a lot about and have they played a bigger role than maybe we've even talked about here? I think constraints are the, are the most beautiful thing because I can get wrapped up in perfectionism. I think we all can, especially as creatives, right? But when you start to just put constraints on either your time or your resources, that's when real creativity shines. I think the greatest art is built out of extreme constraint, right? Through life, through experiences. But yeah, so I, even at work, right, we always put constraints on our projects so that we can ship in time. And when I came to Dribble, we, we didn't put constraints in place. We built until we felt like it was ready, but the quality of the product wasn't where we wanted it to be ever, right? And once we start putting constraints and time limits, the whole team gets a lot more creative, right? And, and now it's like, what can we ship in six weeks, right? Rather than what can we ship in six months? And same with, with Rocketship. I, I feel like the show is so much better than it was when we started. But a lot of that came through 
uh, having to script the show because that was the only way that we could work with an editor and get it at the quality that we wanted. Having to actually put ourselves more in the show so that we weren't so reliant on the quality of the guest. And then getting a bit more creative on what story we were telling so that we had our own opinions inside of the show. So the people listening were listening for us and, and not just because we had a big name. We wanted people to come back each week for us. And that, that was how we could build a, a sustainable show. And so those were all the constraints that we had to put in place and then work around. And, and I, I think working without constraints is one of, it creates some of the laziest product art in, in, in writing. And, and you see it, it's the second album problem, right? There's no constraints anymore. All right, well, I guess we just ran the full interview. Hopefully, if you've made it this far, you enjoyed it. If you want to listen to more of the amazing interviews that Jay is doing, subscribe to Creative Elements. Just search Creative Elements wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back here this Thursday with another amazing product journey from rocketship.fm.